Great to be with you all again. Um, yes, so because um, I have something to do with Wholehearted, we get the uh, preferential treatment. That's why we get um, cheap tickets again. You can thank me afterwards. Okay. Um, so, yeah, last week was Easter, and um, I don't need a pen. <laughs> Certainly can't use a pen now. Um, and... Really, today, we, we get to look at this incredible truth that we get to live from the reality of Easter every day of our lives. Easter doesn't end with Easter weekend. This is where we are, and this is where we find ourselves until the end of time. And this Easter in particular, um, what we really felt was that we wanted to look at it from the, the perspective of the eyewitnesses. We wanted to bring it back to that gritty reality of how the people around Jesus, his friends, his disciples, would have actually encountered what actually happened. Because I think standing 2,000 years ahead of it all, um, some of it gets lost. Some of the actual reality of being present gets lost. And so, yeah, we want to look at what they observed, because that changed their lives radically, and as a result, it has changed our lives. <coughs> so John says, we all know this line, when he is giving his account of Jesus on the cross, he says, it is finished. And certainly, Jesus' life in that moment, as a fully incarnate human man, God, was over. But we know standing on this side of history, that it was only the beginning of something brand new. So we're going to take a small recap from Luke, and I just want you to bear in mind that Luke was the doctor. He was the one who lacked details and facts. And in fact, I can't explain Luke better than allowing Luke to explain himself, because he actually outlines right at the beginning of the book of Luke, he says, this is why I'm writing the book. I want you to understand what I've done. I'm writing it because I want you to understand that, I want you to know that my intention is very clear, that it's honorable and it's full of integrity. So this is what Luke says. This is the, the brains guy, the doctor. Many have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used eyewitness reports circulating among us from early disciples. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theopolis. Now, we don't even know really who Theopolis was, but he addresses Theopolis in the two books that he wrote. He wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. And many actually say that Acts and Luke, uh, Luke and Acts kind of flow as one, like a Luke's Act book. So that's where we're looking today is in Luke and Acts. So he says, I've written these accounts, these accurate accounts for you, Honorable Theopolis, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. And then um, we dig into Luke 24. So this is now straight after the cross. On the, day, on the first day of the week, very early morning, the woman took spices that they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces on the ground, but the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, he is risen. Remember how he told you when he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. When they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. When it says all the others, it's probably women as well. 
It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and all the others with them who told these things to the apostles. But they did not believe the woman because their words, words seemed to them like nonsense. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, a few interesting points that I want to pull out of this, and what I'm going to start with has actually got nothing to do with what I read, but it's just important because I want to frame how we actually think about Jesus, because I think so much of how we think about him and his life is somehow wishy-washy down a little bit, and um, the actual fastiness and revolutionary side of Jesus is often lost. So... I want to just talk briefly about the real reason that he was killed, because it does give us insight into why he, he, um, how he lived, and as a result, how we get to live. Um, so in the last week, he came in to the city of Jerusalem, and then he did some radical revolutionary stuff, and it rattled the authorities, it rattled the Sanhedrin, and it got people really worried. So um, we often hear of the Pharisees, and we kind of go, oh, that lot. But what you need to know is that they were not just an evil lot. They actually deeply desired to please God. They just went about it in a very legalistic, judgmental fashion. And um, some of the most senior uh, Pharisees were those who made up what's called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin's job was to prevent Israel rising up in a rebellion. And so they had struck a deal with Rome that they wouldn't allow Israel to rise up in rebellion. And in return, Rome was going to make sure that they could keep the temple going. So it is a very godly thing to keep the temple going. So they were right to be wanting to broker that kind of a deal. But what we also need to know is that there's a, a layer added, which isn't as honorable. It was that that would ensure the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin's income continued. So for three reasons, we need to understand that the Pharisees hated Jesus. First, because he very often called out their sin and hypocrisy, and none of us like that, do we? Um, second, as his movement grew, he was threatening their income. He could literally break down the temple system. And third, and the biggest reason, is that because he was gaining such fast popularity, it really was possible that he would start an uprising, and then Rome would declare, declare war on, on Israel. So, in a nutshell, that's why they despised him. Okay? So it wasn't just because he was going around and, and, and saying, I'm the son of God, and those things really upset and offended them. But there was also a deeply political thing going on. You know, he wasn't just the blue-eyed, meek and mild Jesus. He was behaving in a way that had political implications, and it was upsetting, upsetting and rattling the authorities and the Sanhedrin. Okay, so that's Jesus. If you've only ever had the blue-eyed lamb of God, just remember him throwing tables all over the place in complete anger. Okay, so now back to the text. So these ladies, they're going off to the tomb, they're going to find out, uh, to go and actually um, put the, the oils and prepare his body for burial because it had happened so fast, they hadn't been able to do that. Now, just imagine they're going there in a state of deep grieving. This, they they actually need to do this for their own closure. They need to go there in their gut-wrenching grief to put, to kind of seal this and give themselves some sense of closure so that they can move on. They're utterly, completely heartbroken at the loss of their dear friend and some of them family member. And um, so they, they have this encounter with the angels and the angels say, remember, we that God, Jesus said that this would all happen. And then they go back to the guys and they're hysterical with excitement. But I think they might have been a bit emotional too and in awe. And so they might have been babbling and hysterical. And so they weren't believed. You know, the men kind of just looked at them and went, oh, hysterical woman. And I won't say anything more on that. Um, 
So Peter goes and looks for himself because he can't believe this crazy bunch of hysterical women. So he goes and looks and he sees the linen strips. And even though they have just said to him, he is alive as he taught us, Peter still goes away wondering. I wonder where his body is. I wonder what's happened. Now, this is Peter, and I want to talk a little bit today about Peter, because there's just fascinating stuff to glean from him. This is Peter, who didn't believe, and believed, and believed, and didn't believe, and denied, and he seemed to have these kind of cycles of, of very strong faith, and then struggling with his faith, and these just ups and downs. He walked on water, and then he puts all of his faith and determination into Jesus, and then he sees a wave and he, he, his faith is destroyed. He, in a moment of incredible revelation, when Jesus said, who am I? He said, you are the son of God. He knew the truth. And then later, we find that he falls for Satan's lies, and he denies Jesus. And that must have been the absolute rock bottom for him, because it says that he wept bitterly. Imagine knowing that you've just done this thing that you didn't think was possible, that you've denied this man that you love and adore and follow with everything, and you deny him. So, yeah, we see his weakness, we see his strength, we see his faith, we see his denial. We know that Peter fluctuated all the time, and, but what we do know is that he wanted to get it right. But every time he tried, he stumbled and he failed. And yet, today he is, he is Peter, he is the rock on which the church has been built. He's the one who has two books in the Bible that were written to the early Christians. It's Peter who observed in person what we are witnesses of today what we read about today. So back to Luke. A bit later in this chapter, we, we hear this. So what happened straight after what we've just heard with Peter going away bewildered is that there's a disciple, there's two disciples. It doesn't really tell us who the two were, but it does seem to be a man called Cleopas, and it seems that it was his wife with him. But it just says two disciples were walking to Emmaus, and Jesus walked with them and talked and taught them, and they didn't know it was him. It's like they were blinded by God to the fact that it was Jesus. And they so enjoyed his teaching and his digging into Scripture that they said, come to our house in Emmaus. And Jesus went to their home and as he broke bread, their eyes were opened to the fact that it was Jesus, and then he vanished. Okay, so now we're picking up where they're explaining to the rest of the disciples what happened. While they were talking about this, so now he's just vanished, now he comes back. Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. It's like hide and seek. It's almost like he's got a tremendous sense of humor. He's like, here I am, gone, here I am. Now you can see me, now you can't, but he's back again. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they'd seen a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled? And why do, doubt, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost would not, does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, um, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. I just love that Luke includes this. It's that absolute earthiness. Like, here's Jesus, king of the universe, and he's got this very important stuff to say, but first he's like, can I just have something to eat? It's like this amazing mix of complete humanity and otherworldliness. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. I'm just going to read that again because I think it's just phenomenal. And we have access to this, all of us. He opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And that, in that, he's referring to Old Testament scriptures, because that's all that existed then. Um, our New Testament scriptures, we only had compiled at around 300 AD. So he opened their eyes to the Old Testament scriptures, where all of the prophecies about him would have been written. 
And he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all the nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send to you what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. I'm going to read that again. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you my father, what my father has promised. But stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. So the finished work of the cross fuels the unfinished work of the commission. How is it not over? Because he says that there's a mission for us to fulfill. He made it very clear. Some of you may have heard it very clearly more from the book of Matthew, which goes like this. Then Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I do, that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. What had he commanded? A lot. He had commanded a lot. But it can all be summed up in this one commandment that he gave at his final supper, which is this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. So Jesus uh, says that we must go and tell the news and that we must share all that he has commanded us to do, which is really summed up in love. And today, we sit here in this reality because of a bunch of men and women who obeyed this. Because a bunch of men and women witnessed it and obeyed it, we are here in this room today. It has swept across the world and utterly changed everything just because he simply did not stay dead. And because he rose from death, inviting us to live as he did, we are invited to believe everything that he said. And this, in its purest and most true and loving form, has changed the world in the most incredible ways. I just want to share with you some of these, these ways that I just found. Uh, through our long history, the church has been a major source of social services like schooling, medical care, inspiration for art, culture, philosophy, and influential player in poli politics and religion. In various ways, it has sought to influence positive change in diverse fields. Biblical and Christian theology have strongly influenced Western philosophers and political activists. The teachings of Jesus, such as particularly the parable of the Good Samaritan, are among the most important sources of modern notions of human rights and the welfare measures commonly provided by governments in the West. Long-held Christian teachings on sexuality, marriage, and the family have also been very influential and, in recent times, a little controversial. Christianity has played a role in ending horrific practices like slavery, human sacrifice, infanticide, and polygamy. Christians have made such a myriad of contributions in society, and I think it's incredible to note that between 1900 and 2000, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to people who 65 of them claim to be Christians. Now, I know that some of the horrors in society could also be placed at the feet of the church, but overwhelmingly, the church today gives hope and love and freedom. How is this possible? Because Jesus did not stay dead. That's why it's possible. And so we're invited, A, to believe and be inspired to live according to all that he taught, and to be to be, to be empowered and strengthened by his spirit. 
So now I'm going to read from Acts. Remember, this could just easily have flowed on from Luke. So he carries on. In my first book, Theopolis, everything I, t- everything I told you about Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to in- in he- into heaven after giving, sorry, after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time, and he provided them with many ways that he was actually alive. He proved to them in many ways he was alive, and he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once when he was eating with them, he commanded, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends to you the gift he promised. And I told you before, John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So then the apostles were with Jesus. They kept asking, Lord, has it, has it time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Because that's what they thought the Savior was coming to do. He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the very ends of the earth. It's so important to look at these parting words. He speaks of a power, and he speaks of this power being carried throughout the world now. We have to fully get how ridiculous it was that he said this. As I mentioned last week, Jerusalem was the size of our Benoni today, okay? And news didn't spread like it does today, okay? For, for news to spread from Jerusalem to the ends of the world, it would have been on foot and probably would have died of old age before it got there, okay? It's, we take for granted how fast news spreads now. It is completely and utterly miraculous that we stand here 2,000 years later, so aware of this message that was carried out from this tiny little place, the size of Benoni. And what were they witnesses of? Because that's the important thing. They were witnesses of love, of a perfect love, of a love that they had never seen before, of a love that knew how to balance justice and mercy, a love that set people free, a love that broke the chains of guilt and shame, love that forgave, a love that challenged systems that didn't care for the poor and downtrodden, a love that was completely and utterly submitted to God, a love that was made possible and empowered by God. And that's what they were witnesses of. They had never seen anything like it. And because of what they saw, here we sit 2,000 years later. But that love was fueled by something, and that something was the Holy Spirit. So I want you to really imagine this as I read to you what happened when this moment of being clothed with power from on high happened. On the day of Pentecost, this is from Acts 2. Remember, it's from this really well-thought-out Luke who had weighed up everything, and this is how he gives an account. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. And suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then they looked and what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there was devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed How can this be, they exclaimed, these people from all over Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, the Perithians, the Medes, the Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Um, lots more names that I'm not going to go into. And we all hear these people 
speaking our own language about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What could this mean, they asked. Now, a few years ago, Sheldon and I invited our life group to go and pray at McCord's Hospital with a bunch of crazy people who used to go and play, pray at McCord's Hospital. They'd have this prayer meeting in the garage and so much crazy stuff would happen there that you barely could actually get yourselves into the hospital. Anyway, this rather cynical couple said, okay, fine, we'll come. You know, they didn't make it seem like they were very excited. And they stood there and they watched this pre-prayer meeting in the garage of McCord's and you could just see that they were like... I think we should just go home. They were just not having it. But we'd been sneaky, Sheldon, and I. We, we operate out of trickiness. We'd actually given them a lift there, so they had to stay. Um, don't worry, I'll never do that to any of you. Um, so anyway, we go to McCord's, and we're going through all the rooms, and we're praying, and um, they kind of just watching from a distance. And there were some beautiful moments happening with the people. But the last room we went into, there was this old Zulu lady, and she was just a tormented, tormented spirit. She was like in a cot, because I think she was dangerous herself, so she had high sides. She was tiny, shrunken little human form, and she was just wailing and howling and in a total state of torment. And um, we went in to pray for her, and it was quite an alarming situation. And I, I, I remember that as we started praying, uh, some of us were just moved to tears, because we, we could feel some of what her anguish was, and we also felt the love that God had for her just pour out through our prayers. And um, this, this lady was kind of standing to a distance, and suddenly she just came forward with this absolute authority and started like shouting and laying her hands on this lady and praying in Zulu, which she didn't speak, okay? And immediately, this dear old lady just melted in a state of complete peace and just lay back, and this this smile came, you know, her eyes were like, um, you couldn't tell the difference between her eyes and her irises. They were like very glossy. So I think she was actually blind. But what you could just see come over this woman was a complete peace. And she just lay there smiling. And it was just such an encounter of God working through this woman who, who didn't even want to be there. But in this moment, her heart met a need. And she allowed God to just flood his spirit through her. And this woman encountered the king of the universe through a tongue that this woman couldn't even speak. So this is what we're hearing in the book of Acts. And this is happening today, over 2,000 years later. It was a beautiful and faith-building moment. And we were witnesses of it. So back to Acts, it says, But the, crowd, the others in the crowd ridiculed him, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. And here comes Peter's very first sermon. Then Peter stopped, stepped forward with the other 11 apostles and shouted to the crowd. He's shouting, he's got some kind of boldness and strength. Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistakes about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. It's much too early for that. Again, I just... I just laugh at this, like, absolute humanity. It's like, I have to persuade you lot that they're not just pickled, because you shouldn't really be pickled by nine in the morning. I kind of wonder what time did he think was appropriate for them all to be pickled. But anyway, um, he says, no, it's, just, it's not that. It's too early. This is something else that you're witnessing. No, what you see here was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people on your sons and your daughters, and they will prophesy. Young men will see visions, your young, and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. In the upper room, he poured out his spirit, and immediately it had a completely miraculous impact. He says, your, 
your sons will see visions, your young men will see visions. And a few years ago, I was asked by a young lady um, to, to meet, to have a talk and to have some counseling. And over the day that I was supposed to meet with her, this unease just grew in my spirit. And I got to a point where I was feeling so anxious about this meeting and I didn't know why. And, you know, sometimes you can pray for yourself and sometimes you just need somebody to pray with you and be strong with you. And so I just found Gary. And I said, Gary, I don't know why, but I'm feeling so, for those of you who don't know, Gary's one of our pastors at Florida Road. I'm just feeling so uneasy about the session that I'm going into. Would you please pray with me? Um, he obviously, for confidentiality reasons, he didn't know who I was going to see, but I just said this session and please pray with me. And we started praying and suddenly he like recoiled and he said, Nat, God just gave me a vision and it is so disturbing. And he actually struggled to tell me what it was that God had just shown him. But he knew that I needed to know in order to be prepared so that we could pray and, and I could find peace. So that when this young woman who was coming to me in such a state of brokenness and anxiety. So that when she told me that thing, I could respond with an absolute peace and having been prepared by God's spirit to just love her through that moment where she maybe was expecting horror, disgust, condemnation. I was prepared by God's spirit to just meet it in such a completely different way. So today we stand here and the title of the sermon is called It Is Finished But It's Not Over. The finished part is this that we no longer have to fulfill 613 laws. Jesus was the fulfillment and perfection of every single one. And when we surrender our lives to him, and step into, we step into this perfection in God's eyes. Those laws are covered in him, and in our surrender to him, we don't have to worry about them anymore. But what about the it's not over part? We here sitting in this room today, we are the it's not over part. We are the ones who get to live out Christ alive, even though it was finished on the cross. Paul said that the same power that lived in Jesus would live inside of us. And that means that for individuals like us, we can invite the Spirit in to do an incredible transforming work inside of us. We can allow Him to heal us, to save us, to give us boldness, And as we surrender to him, we surrender to spirit, we become more loving, more brave, and more connected to his truth. We keep Jesus alive. We stay there. It's not over when we invite his spirit to work in our lives. But how do we do this? Now, yesterday afternoon, my Samuel was opening some presents, and Becky and her sister Sarah, lovely to have you, Sarah, were, were watching with me as Sam opened his one present, which was a remote control car. There was mounting excitement. And you know you need an engineering degree to open up packaging, right? So it wasn't quick. Opening up this thing to get the remote control car out and my six-year-old is frothing with excitement because he's about to start pressing buttons and controlling things. And um, his excitement mounted, mounted as our dread kind of mounted because we grew a sneaking suspicion that there would not be batteries, which indeed turned out to be the truth. Um, try telling that to a child. He's catatonic with excitement about this thing. There were no batteries. There was a car perfectly operational and ready to go, but there was nothing to keep going. Now, Becky and Sarah are preacher's kids. They're called PKs in church world, PKs, okay? Now, 
I forget that, but I also have PKs, and I'd love you to pray for them. Because what happens when you're a PK, as they so lovely, uh, were lovely to remind me yesterday, is that a PK is used in every example and analogy in church. Sometimes probably embarrassingly, and I'd like you to hold me accountable to never embarrassing my kids up here. Um, I invite you to do that. But, you know, so I'm just watching this moment, and I realize that I don't fully actually... I'm not as much of an opportunist as I could be about these PK moments, about like using my children for every <laughs> preach and analogy. But they just went, oh, preach a moment here. And so I'm going to land with this. What changed with Peter? What changed to allow Peter to go from this doubting man of cycles of faith up and down and and grappling with doubt to be the Peter that we know today. What changed was that moment in the upper room where the Holy Spirit came and clothed him with power and strength. God is so patient with our ups and downs. He doesn't get perturbed about our little faith crises. He chose Peter to be the rock on which he built the church. And today I want to pray for each of us that as Peter got those batteries of faith, as he got that Holy Spirit, which we can have today, that we would each get it too. I want you to know that the Holy Spirit is completely a gentleman, okay? He does not ever do anything that we don't allow him to do. Sometimes when we invite the Holy Spirit into our life, we feel love, deep love. Sometimes we feel heat. Sometimes we shake. Sometimes we feel a joy that spills out in laughter. Sometimes just an incredible peace. Sometimes we'll start speaking in a tongue like that lady at the hospital, But whatever happens, it is only something that you allow. He will never take control over you. I want to invite you to allow that to happen in a moment. And why wouldn't you? Imagine being able to be that it's not over to that dear Zulu woman who was a tormented spirit to encounter the peace of her king. Why wouldn't you want to be able to go into a conversation forewarned by God's Spirit so that you could handle a conversation in the most deeply loving way? Why would you not want to have that strength and power from on high that will help you to walk into meetings with solutions that you just know are not your own? How could you give up an opportunity to not be that it's over, it's not over, to some kind of awful thing that you're seeing happening around you that you know God wants to see changed? I'd like to ask you to come up, please, Kim, and I'm going to invite you all to stand. We're going to just have a time of prayer, and Kim's is going to lead us in a song. What we get to do now is to step into the same difference that Peter did, to move from a, a kind of a, I want to believe and I'm trying so hard, but I keep messing up, to being this Peter who preached boldly, who told a man to stand up who'd been crippled from birth and got this man to walk, who did so much more, who was a rock on the church which is built, which is allowing us to stand here in this moment and be the it's not over 2,000 years later. All of us get to be Jesus not over today. I just can't think of a reason today that we wouldn't want to be a part of this great thing that God is doing. So please just quieten your spirits before God. God, we stand here today and we know that 
sometimes we, we're all ready to go and we just lack the power. We lack those batteries to just, just get moving. And we are so in awe of the fact that you sent your son to die for us and that we can continue to do his good work. That in your complete kindness, you have a way to make it easier by giving us your spirit. That you want to strengthen us, help us, empower us, give us solutions from the absolute throne of heaven, God. In this moment, God, we just want to surrender to you. We know that we can be a part of it not being over. We are that we are the hope of the world. And we can be the hope of the world in our own effort, or we can just surrender our own effort and our own trying and our own blundering and our own fighting with doubt and faith and just allow your spirit to flood us and give us something which we could never, ever manufacture ourselves. God, we just want to fully partner with you. We choose to put on the clothes of the power from on high, which you said 2,000 years ago that they must wait for. You told your followers to, stand, to wait for that gift. And that gift goes right to the ends of the earth. God, you have invited us into a mission to see life that is at odds with your kingdom changed and transformed through us because it is not over. To care enough with all that you have given us and equipped us with. Come and fill this room, Jesus. God, just do what you want to do. Love us in the way that only you can. just invade all those places that are left unsurrendered. I said every single life in this room right now would be refreshed by your spirit. God, I ask for people to feel your love, your fire, your heat, your peace, your hope, your joy bubbling up and rising out of us, Lord. there are people in this room who are called to invade the world with your love in the way that you have specifically and uniquely called them to do it, God. But God, we don't want to do that without being full of you, flooded with your spirit. God has for us, to us, for us to be that it's not over. That the world would see us and know that what happened that Easter weekend is not over. We live in Easter every single day of the year.